You're listening to The Film File, the film show for film geeks by film geeks. And when they met, it was Moyada. Hi, welcome to The Film File. I'm Lee Ford. I'm Andy Beacon. Thank you for joining us, fellow film geeks, for more film geekery just the way you like it. Uh, yeah, it's got to be cut out, but it will be tagged at the end. But Lee started off in the intro there saying like for an hour and then realised that the, the podcast version goes on for more than an hour, it's just the radio version that it's an hour. It goes on for and days. Then, <laughs> and then didn't know what to say. Uh, but I was going to come back off the back of that and say, it's an hour for you. It's about three hours for me. <laughs> you live it. You live the film file. Living the dream. Living you the okay, dream. my friend? I'm I'm good. It's uh, It's been a bit of a tearful week this week. I mean, okay. No, not because of the films that I've watched, because uh, I've had a good time with the films that I've watched this week. But um, a, a member of staff who has been very beloved in the cinema left this week to move on to Pastures New. So we all went out the other night and had a very tearful goodbye to her. Uh, that's, uh, yeah, you'll know her, Emily. Oh, yes, I do. One of the supervisors. On my very first shift at the, at the Light Cinema, she was the one who immediately started chatting to me to make me feel welcome. And then we like these she she dropped dropped in the fact that she liked Star Trek and that was it. We hit it off like a house on fire. Um, I don't just consider her like a, an employee that worked for us who had helped, like I'd worked worked alongside and loved working alongside. But she's a really good friend as well. So I will be seeing her a lot, you know, around. Which is one of the not being kidnapped. But it just feels strange her not being part of the building anymore. It's uh, so it's very tearful tearful night out yeah yeah we are uh we are men who show our emotions i there's nothing at all wrong with that i'd rather be that guy i saw a thing on um on twitter of course i did and the dying days of twitter uh about a bro is going to hooters and hanging out with your best bros and being uh, uh i can't remember what the term was but if you're not a bro then you're a spanish tapas with your wife and I thought I'll go for option two every time because that I'm, I'm thinking that would make my life much happier and much much better than hanging out in a bar that's overpriced with uh, girls who really have no interest in you. Yeah, and that's that's focused all around misogyny and intel culture. Which, if you want to know my thoughts on that, well, listen to last week's neat thing when I was talking about something which I've recommended everyone to listen to. Yeah, I mean it, it, that sounds like my worst nightmare. Like if one of my mates said to me, "Let's go to a Hooters," I'd be like, uh, "Let me get us some new friends." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thankfully, my friends are pretty much of the same kind of mindset as me. We'd rather have quiet nights in quiet pubs or nights around the games tables playing board games than go out and drool over women who are forced into a job that just to pay the rent that they don't really enjoy and they've got no interest in yet uh but they have to put up with all the flirting and the lech leching i'm gonna say leching leching's a good word leching's a good word well i think we should bring it back uh, what <laughs> you shouldn't bring back but amazon are is neighbors have you seen that this week yeah i've been all over uh, bbc radio this week having to talk about the return of neighbors to amazon now i I did uh, a piece very recently, which was about the end of Neighbours, and I got to hear the closing uh, closing monologue. And I thought, you know, that's the way for a TV series to go out, almost this recognition of what it's done. I've, I've, I've never been a fan, but yeah. I can understand it's a piece of iconography to an awful lot of people and, and what it's been responsible for. And then to bring it back just just weeks later, I'm sure there are, I'm, I'm, I'm sure there are shows which are much more worthy. I'm looking at you, Firefly. Uh, being yep. brought back on Amazon, 
but but wow, I, I I never saw that coming. And you know what? I don't really care. But you know, it went out with dignity, and and then to be brought back just just a couple of weeks later. Yeah, it's bizarre. What what a bizarre thing for them to. I mean, I know they're putting it on their freebie section, which is the one which is the ad supported tier. Yeah. But hey, there's some good stuff on there. I had a quick look the other day. I mean, this is a show that over the years started off on BBC and then BBC went, viewing figures have really declined. This isn't worthwhile. So it shunted over to Channel 5. And when Channel 5 end up saying, whoa, it's not bringing in enough viewers, I mean, they get like five viewers per episode of anything at the most. Uh, they're called Channel 5 because that's their viewership. And they gave up on it. They stopped co-funding it because it just wasn't beneficial to them. So have Amazon just got too much money? Well... It's <laughs> an entire conversation that would last at least two or three episodes, but uh, but yeah, interesting, you know. But there are other shows that uh, that would deserve to go back. Maybe that should be our Twitter challenge if we're still on Twitter by uh, the end. Of uh, the well, week. I, I don't touch Twitter. Only only posting out the automatic link to the shows each week, um, and especially after the news that came through in the last twenty four hours, yes. Donald Trump is the being Donald reinstated. Is on Twitter. Apparently doesn't want to be. Um, so. Elon Musk did a poll asking whether they want back and it shows how much of the right-wing bigotry has come flooded back into Twitter in the I've recent noticed weeks. I've it a lot. That it was uh, 53% in favour of him returning and th- this is, it, it, it's turning into, I mean it's always been a toxic a toxic battleground on Twitter anyway but you've been able to say, safely navigate it but the new algorithms built in makes it even harder to navigate through and yeah, stop seeing does. stuff in your feeds that you don't want to see. The fact that Elon Musk's posts pop to the top of your news feed every day, I don't want yeah. to see him boasting and showing off. And he posted one the other day that I only caught half of it because it, it was showed that it was there. And when I went into it, it popped up and then it vanished because it had been deleted. And it was something about him saying like... Uh, he, he supports free speech, but anything that is negative will be instantly removed. And then that was removed. And I just thought, well, um, what's actually going on here? I'm done with, I'm pretty much done with Twitter. I'm enjoying Mastodon. I need to say that Mastodon is, uh, I'm getting me, I'm getting me hang on it, of it now. And it's so, so a... therefore then, can I make it our very first Mastodon challenge? A Mastodon challenge? Let's do a Mastodon challenge. Yeah. Okay. So head over to Mastodon and answer this question. Uh, fellow film geeks, if you could bring back any one show from Cancellation, what would it be? Yeah, getting a lot more interactivity from Mastodon as well. Not got as many followers as I had built up on Twitter, but I'm getting a lot more engagement, which kind of shows that the algorithms are better. Yeah. Um, it doesn't rely on algorithms to push things to you. It's basically if you follow people, if you like, you know, if you've got people in your follow list, they're the people who pop up on your feed when you log in. So it's always the people who you want to hear from. They're struggling at the moment because they've suddenly seen a wave of people signing up, gone from like having like small numbers of fo- like people using it to millions upon millions upon millions, gate crashing the party as they're calling it. Yeah. So the thing about Mastodon is it's a bit like it's a bit like having a dinner party where you're inviting over six friends and then two billion turn up and you've run out of chairs, even the ones that you keep in the wardrobe for Christmas. <laughs> That's what I think is going on with Mastodon. We've all got those spare chairs in the world. We have, haven't we? We've, We've got, got our emergency Christmas chairs. And every now and then we look at them and go, we haven't used half of these. Should we get rid of them? But you convince yourself that you need to keep them because you never know 
you never know when the zombie apocalypse is going to happen. <laughs> You're going to need more chairs. Yeah. Uh, I, don't, I don't know why that came from the zombie apocalypse. Yeah, um, I was trying to work that one out. But no, no, I, I get your point. I'm with you on it. <laughs> I've also uh, treated myself this week. Finally, I've got Last of Us Part 2. I'll probably never get round to playing it because you know you what should. I'm like with multiple games. But I've heard so many good things about it. It dropped to under £10 on the PlayStation Store in their sale. Oh, so wow. it's like, that's a, that's a no-brainer. And I know that out there, there'll be some people say, you bought it digitally. You probably could have picked it up from CEX for £5. It's like, yeah, but I can't have it on three different machines at the same time. If I buy it from CEX, digital works out beneficial for me, even if I pay full price, because my son can play the game on his PlayStation using my master account. I can play it on my PS5, and someone else can play it on my secondary account. Yes, I've got multiple PlayStations. <laughs> so deal with that. All you people who don't think that people who buy digital are stupid. I'm not. I get three for one. <laughs> I read an interesting article, and I wish I could point your way to it because I, I, I don't remember where I saw it. I think it, I think it might have been on on Twitter, and I went down a rabbit hole. <laughs> uh, and it was about the MCU, and it was something that we've talked about uh, with Phase Four, especially coming to an end with Black yeah. Panther. And a, a lot of people have said, "Oh, Phase Four was uh, uh, unfocused, and it didn't build." with its last film to a satisfying conclusion or leading into the next season, AKA the Thanos. Yeah. I, th- I think everyone kind of misses the point that, um, you know, Thanos was built, was, was built up from phase one to phase three. Yeah. There was no big bad at the end of phase one or phase two. It was all just a build up, build up, build up. Yeah. It was kind of a hint, wasn't it? Yeah. But interestingly enough, uh, and, and I've got to agree with this piece is that, there has been something thematic that's run through it. And that's the the theme of legacy. Yeah. Uh, And each film has had that. You think about Black Widow passing on to the next Black Widow. You think about Shang-Chi and the legacy of moving on from his father. Yeah. Uh, Even Hawkeye passing on to the next Hawkeye. Uh, Doctor Strange introducing the the legacy of the the multiverse. Yeah. So, uh, you know, Spider-Man did it. And and when I went back and sort of reanalyzed it, you look at the thread that runs throughout these films. There's there's a lot more going on than I think because we've not had a, a repeat of what Marvel have done previously. Mm. It has been about this idea of coming to terms with your past yeah. and moving on to your legacy. And and Black Panther, uh, no spoilers, but in that last little sequence, we get to see how that's going to play out. And I thought it was. Inc- you know, we said last week we thought that was incredibly moving and very, very smart in retrospect. Yeah. But all the films have had this element. And there have been elements within the TV show as well about about moving on from your past and, and opening up into a new future. And, and I think that's going to tie into what, what Secret Wars is going to be about. But, yeah, I thought I thought it was it, a little light bulb moment for things that we've talked about. And it's it's clearly been there. It's just not been perhaps as highlighted and it's let audiences find it their own way as opposed yeah. to being sledgehammered with it. But yes, if you look at it, folks, go back and look over phase four and, and see that there is there is something thematic going on. Spider-Man, yeah. Eternals, yeah. It's all there. Yeah, I'll have to d- dig and find that article and I'll give it yes. a good read. I wish I could tell you. I, I have no idea where, where I read it. It was one of those that started reading it. And especially the way that Twitter is now, it brings up, if you've read one comic site, then you read all the comic sites. Yeah. <laughs> you know, no, not if you're following them or anything like that, it's suddenly all there. Anyway, moving on. What have we got for you on this week's show? Of course, we've got the news. We've always got the news. And we've got lots of news this week. We have a deep dive 
into the classic Casablanca. We've got reviews which include... The Menu, which landed at cinemas this week. Spirited, which landed at cinemas and on streaming this week. And Confess Fletch, which landed somewhere at cinemas this week. We've got chat, we've got nonsense, we've got it all. Stick around, because here is the news. And as ever, let's start the news with this week's box office. And I'm guessing, well, I've seen some figures that's saying in the US, Wakanda Forever has clawed its way, see what I did there, folks, <laughs> to a solid 66 million on its second weekend. So as kind of expected, Black Panther suffered an over 60% drop. In the US this week, it dropped 63% to take 66.5 million this weekend. Uh, the menu opened in second place with nine million. The Chosen season three, episodes one and two, was a surprise entry into the top five for the US, being that it's two episodes of a religious TV series telling the story of Christ and his ministry, taking eight point eight million for the exclusive screenings. Black Adam held into fourth place with four point six million, and Ticket to Paradise took three point two million putting it into fifth place. Wakanda Forever, after its first week and a half worldwide, is now up to 552 million. It's looking likely to profit, but it's looking unlikely to pass that 1 billion mark. But it remains to be seen whether in the US, particularly this week, the Thanksgiving celebrations will draw in a bigger audience and have less of a drop-off, and whether it will have legs to continue through December on the road to Christmas. Meanwhile, here in the UK, again, Black Panther, Wakanda Forever was in the top spot. It took another 6.2 million in the UK this weekend, taking it to 22.6 million so far. The menu, again, in second place, took 918,000, um, including previews. It takes it to 931,000, a strong opening for a, a smaller film that everyone deserves to see. Lao Lao Crocodile is still in there in third place, taking another 521,000. Black Adam in fourth place with 496,000 and Living is in fifth place with 338,000. What do you think uh, next week, Andy, is is looking the threat for Black Panther, if anything, or do you think it's got still a clear run? It's still pretty much got a clear run for a couple of weeks. Uh, There's no real big threats on the horizon. We've got another week next week of smaller films dropping. I think the biggest threat that it might see is Disney's Strange World with the family audiences, but yeah, that that, it's, it's not been heavily promoted though, and it doesn't. No, seem it to hasn't, be... has it? And in fact, I, I'm surprised it's coming out next week because I've not seen much in the way of any promo for it. So I think that Black Panther will probably, similar to what Black Adam did, it held the top spot even though it was dropping week on week purely because of the content. I think this is the way it's going to be for the next few weeks until we get close to a, a certain blue-skinned alien, which nice segue is that it isn't currently on track to break us box office records from what i've heard no um, and this ties into last week when we reported that mr cameron is is starting to lose his anticipation for it and starting to get ready to maybe have the third film in the avatar series be the last one kind of makes sense if and we've talked about the return of avatar and this idea that it is 10 or so years too late the, the the buzz, the the anticipation, the special effects have moved on. When Avatar was was fresh and unique, it, it's not there for it anymore. And if it doesn't hit the box office predictions, if it doesn't make the huge amounts of money, you have to remember this is a huge costing production. And we've seen a lot of big number productions this year 
that have struggled to break even. And we're maybe getting to the situation where film distributors and film companies need to start reining their budgets back. They need to start pulling it back in. We, we've seen this and we've said this before, but then a film will go to extraordinary lengths and do do the money, like, like Endgame, for instance. And I think it lulls studios back into that false sense of security. Uh, and talking of, of, um, of Endgame and budgets, have you seen this article about uh, Fast X, okay. which is the is Fast and Furious franchise biggest yet? In, in, in fact, nearing the total that uh, Avengers Endgame was. Yes, it's um, allegedly now around about $340 million budget. $340 million budget. Now, the previous film, Fast 9, was a $200 million budget. And whilst, you know, if you look back over the franchise, there's been some high earners from these, Furious 7 earned $1.5 billion. But Fast 9 finished around $730 million. Now, if you take the usual calculation, in order to break even, once you take out marketing costs and distribution costs and cinema's shares, take the budget, multiply it by two and a half, that's what it's got to hit in order to break even. 340 multiplied by two and a half, it's going to have to clock a billion. Yeah. It's going to have to clock a billion. It's not unheard of. I mean, they've kind of built and built and built to this. And, and there is... Uh, an audience out there that are absolutely devoted to these movies. Yeah, but it, uh, after the underwhet, well, I mean, 730 million is still quite a good number, but it's quite underwhelming given how high the franchise was going. Yeah, we saw that similar with the Transformers franchise. They were a dead cert to make loads and loads of money up until the, you know, the last film when the declining interest in them suddenly like made the last one plummet. And then we got Bumblebee, which deserved to do better which suffered at the box office simply because people had got tired of the franchise. I don't, I don't know. It could go either way with this uh, Fast things. We know that Fast X is going to be the first part of the final two films, and they're going to be like, it's, they're basically doing like a double biller of like, you know, the story is going to play out over these two films and then it will resolve all the family issues because it's all about family. I don't know. Uh, I don't know where this is going to go. I do think that 340 million is maybe a bit too ridiculous. And apparently a lot, a lot of that cost comes from there's uh, production costs, global inflation, which is going to affect a lot of productions over the next couple of years. Yeah. And uh, the pandemic testing requirements, as well as increased salaries and the range of names that they're putting in here. And they're bringing everyone into these last two films. Yes, it's going to cost a lot. But yeah, it, we are getting to a time where... It's going to get harder and harder for big budget releases to break even and make profit. And we're going to have to see the industry being a bit smarter and a bit sharper. Also, the films didn't start off as these huge behemoths of, uh, of movie making. They were quite B-movie budgets way back in the day. One thing that we will always notice with audiences is that once one bubble bursts, people latch onto a different bubble. So it's yeah. just the next big thing will draw people's attention and then we'll get onto another Another good track of things. Have you seen the news that Sony are working with MGM Plus, which was the network that used to be called Epics, on live action Spider-Verse spin-offs? No, no, I haven't, strangely enough. It's not crossed my radar. Yeah, because obviously people, even though the films were garbage, people still paid money to go and see Venom, Venom 2 and Morbius. So, obviously Sony who only have their hands on anything Spider-related from the Marvel products, see a chance to you know do what Marvel are doing on Disney Plus at the moment with TV shows 
and are starting to look at live action series of other characters. And the first one that is being ordered to go to series is Silk Spider Society. Okay, maybe I I've noticed it, but probably didn't pay enough attention to it. This is a Spider-Man spin-off, which is based on the comic book characters that Dan Slott and Humberto Ramos designed. And the character of Cindy Moon, a Korean-American woman who was bitten by the very same spider that, that bit Peter Parker. And the action follows Cindy as she escapes imprisonment and searches for her missing family on her way to becoming the superhero known as Silk. So having read this, like her origin story in the comics, this sounds like it might keep quite faithful. Yeah to how the books were because she was imprisoned and it was only through interaction with Peter Parker that she managed to escape her imprisonment and started to find a life. Walking Dead executive producer Angela Kang is going to serve as showrunner okay. and has developed the series alongside Phil Lord, Christopher Miller and Amy Pascal who are all going to executive produce. So good names behind it. Yeah. As much as we can say that, you know, Sony have got it completely wrong with the Spider films, you know, the Venom stuff, the Morbius stuff. Let's not forget that Sony also gave us Into the Spider-Verse and we're all very excited to see more Spider-Verse stuff. And Phil Lord and Christopher Miller are Spider-Verse heads. So this could be the saving grace for Sony. If they're the guys leading it forward, then my interest is, is, is peaking already it's peaking so maybe they'll get it right on tv or in the uh, and in the animation movies while again it completely wrong on the big screen adventures but i'm interested i'm also going to be interested now to see what other characters from the about ta- 900 spider related characters that they've got their hands on that they could do anything with there's a lot of potential to really turn around <laughs> everyone's expectations from Sony's Spider-Verse. Can we jump back to DC? If you want to jump onto DC, you jump onto DC. Uh, Have you seen the news that Black Adam, which has only been out for, what, four weeks now? It's on about five, five weeks. Five weeks, is it? Well, it's leaked in HD quality online, which is not going to do it any favours. That's pretty much killed any remaining box office that it's going to have, because... Let's be honest, if, if people haven't seen it by now, they weren't that bothered. Mm. How it's got leaked online in HD quality means that it has to have been an insider one again. And we yeah. had this with the uh, leak of the uh, mid credit sting that it hadn't been seen by anyone except for insiders and it got leaked. Or has there been another hacking incident like what was done against, uh, well, good old Sony, Sony going back to yeah. Sony a few years ago? We don't know, but that HD version's out there. We were not gonna we're not gonna tell you where to find it because we don't agree with uh, tracking down and taking advantage of things like this. But if you're not gonna go and watch it in the cinema, hey, <laughs> seems like you don't have long to wait to watch it. Yeah, they're gonna make some decision now about how quickly they bring it onto streaming. Uh, yeah, uh, now it's out there. I noticed actually, uh, and I think again, it's a boron is that there are now full films on Twitter, which <laughs> clearly their copyright machine isn't doing its best hey indiana jones there's been some images at last appearing uh thanks to empire magazine they've had an exclusive and mm. uh harrison ford says it's full of adventure laughs and real emotion uh images of indy you know what once he's got the hat on once he's got the jacket back on it's still harrison ford it's still indiana jones yeah and apparently rumor has it that the Nazis are somehow involved in the space race. That's just a rumour. But I, I'm looking forward to it. I I, I think Mangold's a great director. And- it's working on this whole like aspect of how many Nazi scientists were part of like the development of... That's right, you know, yeah, the space race, yeah. Yeah, the space race. And how many of them were still actually secretly loyal to the Nazi regime. And that's what... Because 
as soon as he said, oh, he's going to go up against Nazis again, it's like, what, in 1968? How is that going to work? You can kind of see how it works. It's yeah. like that the, the basically Nazis on Nazis underground. I don't want to get excited for an Indiana Jones film. I've been through this before. I don't want to, but I can't help but getting excited for it the more and more images that I'm seeing. So there was a rumour online that uh, um, uh, was being put about that test screenings were, were dismal, that Indiana Jones was being replaced and apparently Chris <laughs> Pratt was stepping into it. However, James Mangold jumps in and says, and basically says, look, the film's looking great. Uh, Indiana Jones hasn't been replaced and never will be. And please take your information from me, the film's director, rather than some guy called at uh, Swamp Dweller or Cellar Dweller. Basement Dweller. Basement Dweller, <laughs> yeah. And I thought, well, what a great put down. Thank you, James Mangold. You're doing the Lord's work. Yeah, he's, he's basically doing what we try to do as much as we can. Bit of sad news that uh, Deborah Ann Wall might not be returning to Daredevil. Okay, but do you think her, her story was done in, in Daredevil? It felt like that to me. Uh, and we know that the character in the comics moved on. I don't yeah. think she's essential for me to come back. I, I, I don't think she's essential, but she was such a good character and such a good role that it'd be disappointing for her to not to at least not to at least drift in and be a you part never of know it. With Marvel, do you? I mean, it's going to be eighteen episodes, so anything could happen over yeah. those eighteen episodes. But she's confirmed in an interview saying that no one's been in touch, uh, no one's called me yet. As of now, I'm not part of it. As of now. So possibly, yeah. possibly. She'd be thrilled to be a part of it. They know where know where I am. Like I said, I love the character Karen Page. I love telling that story. I feel I have more to say, but it's up to them what kind of story they want to tell. Obviously, I'm still excited for watching Daredevil. Yeah. The 18 episodes is the only thing that is concerning me. Because we've, we've said so many times that what works now in the streaming age is that most series are like eight episodes at most. And it gives it chance to just like tell a tight story without any baggage and this is the first time that they're breaking that tradition to go for 18 episodes. And I'm worried that maybe they're going to stumble over it. I'm remaining optimistic, but I'm keeping a little bit of pessimism at the back of my mind. Expected to get to like episode six and go, well, this one goes nowhere. Then episode seven. Yeah. And then it picks up towards the end. There's the unconfirmed rumor going around that Echo is a mess. But there was also the unconfirmed rumors that She-Hulk was a mess. There was also the unconfirmed rumors that Miss Marvel was a mess. Um, Hawkeye. Etc. Etc. So I take it's amazing how all all these all these shows that have female leads, all the unf unconfirmed rumors about them being a mess, comes yeah. out during production. It's almost like there's an incel community out there spreading false information to try to make people hate on stuff. Yes, I don't know why they do that. Why do they fear women so much? Well, read the book that I recommended last <laughs> week. <laughs> I've got to keep plugging that book. I'm telling I know, you. I know. Are, are you on a commission? Can they sponsor the show? I'm, I'm, I'm going to get in touch with them and just say, look, sure. send me some money. I'll keep this going. Kugler is not going to be directing Secret Wars, despite the rumours that were saying otherwise. Yeah, I'd, I'd read as much. I, I never thought he was going to. I know it was always, a, it was always just a rumour. Um, he and Feige have both confirmed that no such talks have taken place. He's also said that he's not sure what his next film is going to be. It might be another Black Panther film, but at the moment he's just resting up and taking some family time before deciding where to go next i hope so i hope he comes back to it i think he deserves to if not i would highly suggest michael b jordan just yeah well we get we get to see what his directorial style is in only a few more months when creed lands as yeah, his uh, debut so it's going to be um, quite interesting. Feige has confirmed that the Wakanda franchise is going to continue. Uh, producer Nate Moore suggested that a spin-off series could follow the already planned Dora Milje 
Aoki one. Uh, the world is expansive and there are so many great characters. Beyond what happens with this film, there are more opportunities to go back to Wakanda. And he adds that there's some ideas for reprising characters and some totally new people tied into the Wakanda story. So it seems that Wakanda is going to become its own sub-franchise within the Marvel franchise itself. Very comic booky. Yeah. Very comic booky. One thing that came out of Stranger Things Season 4 was the rise of uh, Joseph Quinn, who was uh, beloved to many as, as Eddie Munson. Talk to my kid, who is, just thinks Eddie Munson is the greatest character ever and wants mm. to be him. You know, the fact that he's a stoner, guitar-playing, drug dealer, I don't think that's the bit that he, he thinks is the coolest bit. Anyway, he's going to be joining Lupita Nyong'o in A Quiet Place Day One. Yep, yeah, I'd be great to see him. And he's demonstrated with Stranger Things how he can work with horror. So uh, Quiet Place Part One is getting more and more appealing each time that they mention another name for it. Yeah, we reported here that Pig's Michael Sanoski is now in the chair, moving on from Jeff Nichols to direct... And you can see Quinn next in a new drama, Horde, which is making its way right now as we speak through post-production. Excellent. Uh, sticking in the lines of horror and the It prequel series, Welcome to Derry, has now got Jason Fuchs and Brad Caleb Kane serving as co-showrunners throughout the series. The series is going to be a prequel to the 2017 and 2019 film adaptations of the Stephen King novel. Fuchs wrote the teleplay for the first episode of the series based on a story he wrote alongside Andy and Barbara Muschietti. And Fuchs and Kane will executive produce along with the Machetes with Andy I to direct the premiere episode for Warner Brothers Television. Having made his directorial debut uh, in 2018's Mid-90s, Jonah Hill's next film is to star Keanu Reeves. Yeah, the nicest guy in Hollywood. Uh, (laughs) Hill, who co-wrote a script with Ezra Woods, is behind the camera again for a film called Outcome. Keanu Reeves is... I was talking the other day at work about like, yeah, because we, we were talking about the John Wick latest trailer that we're all obsessed, everyone's obsessing of. If you've not seen the trailer, then it's you're not so obsessing good. over it and you need to watch it so you can obsess over it like the rest of us. But I was talking the other day about like, isn't it great to see Keanu Reeves's re-rise into the public stratosphere? He just vanished off the radar after the Matrix trilogy. He kind of like bottomed out um, some, I mean, th- there was a f- couple of dubious choices of films for him to go into. And there was one that he didn't actually sign up to, but his mate did for a laugh and he ended up stuck with it. But he just went to nowhere. And then in recent years, seeing him rise back up and realising how much we needed Keanu Reeves on the screen has been great. And the more that we get, the better. You know, we've got another John Wick film. We've got him crossing over into the other aspects of the John Wick franchise. We've got him popping up here, there and everywhere. And we've got the Constantine 2 film, which is uh, finally going to happen. Yeah, finally going to happen. This is Keanu Reeves' world and we are just allowed to live in it. Nicest guy in Hollywood. And I'm happy with that. Nicest guy in Hollywood. Always welcome on the show. Yeah. (laughs) We'd never doubt it, would we? Sorry, Keanu, you're not welcome. (laughs) Oh, anybody's welcome, but Keanu especially. You're welcome. Yes. Tarantino has revealed that he's going to be stepping into television. Oh, it's been rumoured for ages. It was going to be a Once Upon a Time in Hollywood recut for Netflix, but that seems to have gone nowhere, unless it just appears one week and that nowhere was just Netflix's basement. Specifics of what he's going to be doing aren't forthcoming, but he has revealed that he's planning to shoot an eight-episode TV series next year, which might be that so long rumoured, like you say, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood TV series. 
it won't it won't be his first foray onto the small screen. I mean, he he, he helmed an episode of ER back in nineteen ninety five that was a huge rating success. Yeah, he did an episode of CSI as well in two thousand and five. That was yeah, and more recently, he's been rumored to be in talks to helm installments of FX's Justified revival. However, that didn't pan out. He's also guest starred on various shows over the years, such as JJ Abrams as Alias. And he was also revealed at the event where he's announced this TV series that he's been approached to do a rewrite of the 2000 Samuel L. Jackson Shaft reboot, but rejected the offer. He was also asked if he was ever given a choice to make something for the Marvel Universe, what would he go for? What do you think he went for? What did he go for? It's so up his alley, and I'd love to see it. Sergeant Fury and his Howling Commandos. Yeah. Well, he mentions it in uh, True Romance, doesn't he? Yeah. Come on, Marvel. Come on, Marvel. He's giving you the open invitation there. Let's have a Sergeant Fury TV series. That'd be great. It'd be marvellous. Apparently, this has landed in the States, uh, and from across the pond, it's drawing award nominations person that's steven spielberg's the fablemans i didn't think it had landed yet uh, and i don't know when we get it in the uk we get it in january but now steven spielberg is turning his attention he's been talking about this on and off for a few years and his plan to make a movie featuring the character of frank bullet made iconic of course by steve mcqueen in the 1968 thriller that shares the character's surname anyway it looks like Bradley Cooper is now making a deal to play that Steve McQueen classic character, Frank Bullitt. Yeah, I think Bradley Cooper's a great fit for it. Yeah, he's cool. He's got the cool. As you said, it's, this isn't a remake of the Steve McQueen film. It's a telling of the actual Frank Bullitt cop. It, it's said to be a, a new original story which features the character. Further plot specifics are under wraps. Josh Singer is penning the script. Cooper, Spielberg and Christy Makosko are going to produce. And Cooper is currently in post-production on his Leonard Bernstein biopic, Maestro, which he co-wrote, directed, produced and stars in. My God, I wrote the theme tune, sing the theme tune, um, <laughs> alongside Carrie. <laughs> I don't know where you were going with that then. <laughs> alongside Carrie Mulligan. Uh, the new Bullets could be Spielberg's next project now that Fablemans has been released. We get to see it in the UK, at the Fablemans, that is, in January. Of course we do, because it's getting tipped for Oscar nominations and we get all the awards films in the January-February season. Ryan Fleck and Anna Bowden, who made Captain Marvel, went a little bit quiet after that movie. Perhaps it wasn't the film that they wanted. But they are going to be working again with the great Ben Mendelsohn, who's joined alongside... Pedro Pascal for their film Freaky Tales. Um, a lot less aliens, a lot less superheroes. It's set in Oakland in 1987. It's a wholly original, immersive film inspired by Ryan's experiences growing up in the Bay of that area. The film is compromised of four interconnected stories, each featuring distinct characters, real-life locations, and noteworthy historical events. Kind of like a, an almost an anthology idea where the stories just slightly intercross. And you know what we like with anthologies? We like, like, a, anthology. like them a lot. Speaking of freaky, okay, a sequel to 2003's Freaky Friday remake is looking more and more likely by the day. Oh, okay. I thought you were going to go back to Freaky. Nope, which is well worth watching if you've never seen yeah. Freaky. Well worth watching. Uh, the Jamie Lee Curtis and Lindsay Lohan 2003 remake. I mean, the article that I read this in referred to that as the original. It's like, what? No, <laughs> it's not. 
was a story about a mother and daughter whose bodies are switched and they're putting each other's shoes and oh they learn life's lessons and it made more than 160 million on a 26 million budget previously both lohan and curtis have expressed interest in doing a follow-up lohan also recently returned to acting with a starring role in netflix holiday movie falling for christmas but this week at the los angeles premiere of glass onion curtis said that the movement is happening and it's looking like more of a possibility. There's no scheduled date, but we're talking. People are talking. The right people are talking. I'm 64 in a week. Lindsay is 36. A sequel lends itself so beautifully. We're both committed to it. And it's not ours to make. It's Disney's to make. And I think they're interested. And we're talking. Now, given the fact that Disney are delving back into all of their back catalogue and doing unnecessary sequels at the moment, this doesn't surprise me. Do we want another Freaky Friday? I, I, I'm, I'm not, not sure. It, it, it'd be a good Disney. It'd work on Disney Plus. I don't think. Yeah, a, a cinema. Audience. It's not a box office draw. Um, no. But yeah, it, it it'll be part of the Disney Plus lineup if if and when it does go into production. Oh, let's be honest, when it goes into production because they are churning them out. We had a Home Alone film last year. We've just got Disenchanted. We've had Hocus Pocus too. Of course, they're going to sign up and just go. Yeah, have fifty let's million. It. Let's make this film. The Indian epic that came out this year that I raved about, RRR, is getting a sequel. Okay. Did you get a chance to watch RRR? I didn't. I I've seen it mentioned in so many places, basically based on the fact that you mentioned it on the show. Set yourself three hours of your life to one side and immerse yourself in that beautiful, beautiful film. But um, filmmaker SS Rajamouli, who directed the film, has confirmed that a story for the sequel is currently being worked out by his father. The filmmaker discussed the sequel at a screening in Chicago over the weekend, saying his father is the story writer for all of his films. And we discussed a bit about RRR too, and he's working on the story. It's too early for further details on the film, still in very early developments but knowing how fast these telugu and bollywood productions go into uh, production it will be finished by the time i finish reading out that (laughs) sentence but rrr like it had reported budget of 72 million one of the most expensive telugu indian films and followed the real life 1920s indian freedom fighters komran beam and Aluri Sitara Raju, who united against a common enemy, the British, who were occupying their land. But it wasn't historically accurate. It was bonkers. It was huge action set pieces and a beautiful bromance linking throughout the whole film. I thoroughly recommend RRR to everyone. It's one of my favourite films of the year. And the thought of more action in that world environment, I'm well and truly up for it. I don't know where they're going to go with it, but I'm, I'm on board. It's been mentioned a ton of times. Originally, it was going to be Gerard Butler. Recently, it was going to be the Invisible Man director. Lee Wannell bringing it to the screen. Escape from New York has now been, again, mentioned by enlisting a new creative team. Uh, 20th Century Studios is in talks with Tyler Gillett. Matt Bertini, Olpin and Chad Villella, the trio collectively known as Radio Silence, who were responsible for VHS, Southbound and Scream, to helm the planned reboot of John Carpenter's very, very classic movie, which originally starred Kurt Russell in the role of Snake Plissken. Um, the actor's not believed to be attached to the movie at this time. The character did come back uh, in Carpenter's much maligned deservedly so escape from la and has expressed interest in doing one more run but this looks like it's a full reboot whether it'll happen who knows it has been mentioned for the last 20 years that it's going to hit the big screen if i was going to trust anyone with this project i'd go for radio silence you know scream and radio or not showed that they they have an understanding 
of genre. They have an understanding of uh, pop culture and they can deliver. So they're currently wrapping up the post-production on the next Scream film, which is due in cinemas in March. So we should hopefully start to hear some confirmation one way or the other on this as we get closer to that date. So we've mentioned before how much we're big fans of Doctor Who. I think we've mentioned it once or twice. Probably. Yeah, because we did a deep dive into the screen versions of Doctor Who and the Daleks. We now know who's going to be Shooty Gatwa's Doctor's companion. It was revealed this weekend on Children in Need. Yes, Millie Gibson from Coronation Street. Yep. Uh, For our international listeners, you won't know who the heck Millie Gibson is. I do, to be honest. Yeah. Or all those people who don't watch Coronation Street. But she's been cast as a character, Ruby Sunday. What a great name. It's almost Ruby Tuesday, but um, it's only a couple of days off. Uh, Doctor Who script editor Scott Hancock said that secret auditions had been held for the new companion in September with Gatwa in attendance. David Tennant and Catherine Tate are going to return to Doctor Who for three specials before it hands over to Gatwa. But Gatwa is expected to make an appearance within them before getting a full season of his own show, which is where Gibson will then come into it. Gatwa's first full episode is said to be airing over the festive period next year. So for Doctor Who fans, it's an exciting time because not only do we get to revisit David Tennant, we get to be angry again at Catherine Tate having anything to do with Doctor Who. And then we, um, we get a brand new Doctor with a brand new vision and a brand new direction. And I'm always excited at a new Doctor. I'm always yes, it's always a fresh start, isn't it? It's the only show which constantly reboots itself. Yeah. And if you don't like it, you wait three years and another one will come along. Yeah. Lionsgate have picked up the rights to the film adaptation of the iconic vi- video game by Sega, Streets of Rage. If you've never played Streets of Rage, it's oh, just basically... Oh, my favourite. I've got a Streets of Rage oh. story. I was... Oh, I got my first video game player and Streets of Rage was one of the first games that I ever, ever owned. And I was sick. I'd got um, glandular fever, which knocks you out for, for like a good couple of weeks once you get over the initial illness. And you can't do a lot. You're just so knackered. Yeah. And I played Streets of Rage from start to finish and loved it. And I've always wanted <laughs> there to be a Streets of Rage film. I used to play this in the video game arcades. It used to be like 10 pence after 10 pence after 10 pence getting chucked into this machine. Me and my mates would double up on it, beat our way through the city in this very simple... A lot of games at the time had that simple plot of you just scrolling. That was great. You're just scrolling from like through streets and subways, beating up everyone to try to get to the person who's kidnapped your girlfriend at the end. Obviously, if you picked up the rights to a game series that is all about fighting and violence in a stylistic way, you're going to get John Wick creator and nobody scribe Derek Kolstad on board, aren't you? It'd be rude not to. He has penned the script on spec based on the video game. Follows former police officers who are battling a crime syndicate. Plot specifics are under wraps, but let's be honest, this is going to go into production pretty soon. And um, Amber, Streets of Rage on the big screen. I can't wait. One last story from me. We announced earlier this year, and then he's gone very, very quiet, that Fede Alvarez was to develop a new Alien movie. He of the Evil Dead remake and Don't Breathe. He's on board to write and direct, and that's all we had. Anyway, now there's some casting. Mayor of East Town, actress Kaylee Spaney, she of the Craft Legacy, Pacific Rim Uprising as well, is set to star. There are no details on her character, but there's already speculation. Of course, there is. she might be playing an older take on Newt. And still to come, and it's still in development, 
is Noah Hawley's Aliens TV series, also for Hulu. It's going to be a, a xenomorph year, if ever there's been one. I know that the Alien franchise kind of meandered a bit and lost a lot of public interest, but let's not forget how they brought the Predator franchise back this year with Prey in such a spectacular way. Let's not write off old franchises just because the they kind of got ruined by Fox. Let's be I'm gonna say I've I've said it. Yeah, no, I agree. Fox just couldn't handle its franchises. They never knew what to do with them. From the X-Men franchise to the Alien franchise, whatever they touched, they didn't know how to deliver it. They tried to play too safe and didn't get creative. Let's now put Fox behind us and just be optimistic about the future of these franchises. And that is this week's the news. You're listening to The Film File, the film show for film geeks by film geeks. If you've already signed up, subscribed, then use this opportunity to go and make yourself a cup of tea. And if you haven't, listen on. If you haven't subscribed, all you have to do is head over to your favourite podcast platform, hit the subscription button, and remember to leave a like. You can also find The Film File on one of these many newfangled social media sites. Uh, Basically, whatever social media platform you want to look at, do a search for Film File UK or at Film File UK and if we're on there, there we are. you'll stumble across us. Uh, you can use most of them to keep up to date on any new episode drops or any bonus content that goes out. If you want to engage directly with us, you can do so. I will pay attention to any di- any messages that get sent directly to me on Twitter. So feel free at Filmfile UK to still try to contact me there. But please jump onto Mastodon, follow us at Filmfile UK over there and engage with us over there. Or if you don't want to do that social media fanglery, uh, why not just send us an email? Podcast at filmfile.uk. Get in touch with any of your thoughts on any films, old, new, upcoming, your top lists, your bottom lists, anything you'd love to us to talk about on the show. We're all ears. We literally are all ears. I've got about 17 down my back. I'm like one of those lab experiments where they had the ear on the back of a mouse. <laughs> you lost me. Completely lost me. <laughs> I'm really going off on tangents today. It's a uh, you are a tangent this is, guy. This is this is a wacky Sunday for me. Uh, <laughs> after last after last week, when I was in my dressing gown and half asleep. This week, I'm just I'm far too awake for a Sunday morning. You can join us on No Barriers Radio every Thursday at eight o'clock for a special one hour version of the film file, and that's on NoBarriersRadio.com. See, we are everywhere. And now it's time for this week's deep dive. This week's deep dive is a classic and you can't get any more classic than this picture that we're going to be talking about. 1942 is an American romantic drama directed by Michael Curtis, starred Humphrey Bogart, Ingrid Bergman and Paul Heinreid. Set in World War II, of course, it can only be Casablanca. Casablanca, city of hope and despair, located in French Morocco in North Africa. The meeting place of adventurers, fugitives, criminals, refugees lured into this danger-swept oasis by the hope of escape to the Americas. But they're all trapped, for there is no escape. Against this fascinating background is woven the story of an imperishable love and the enthralling saga of six desperate people, each in Casablanca, to keep an appointment with destiny. I was willing to shoot Captain Reno, and I'm willing to shoot you. All right, Major, you asked for it. I don't think, Andy, we have done a film as classic as this, that's as beloved as this particular movie, that transcends normal film geekery into adoration of a movie. If you haven't seen Casablanca, it's set during World War II, and it focuses on an American expat play, of course, by Bogart, 
who chooses between his love for a woman, Ingrid Bergman, or helping her husband, Paul Heinrich, a Czech resistance leader, escape from the Vichy-controlled city of Casablanca to continue to fight against the Germans. The cast also included the great Claude Rains, Conrad Veidt, Sidney Greenstreet, Peter Lorre, and Dooley Wilson. And not many people know this, but the screenplay is based on an unproduced stage play, Everybody Comes to Riggs. I have a personal connection to this film because my dearly departed grandmother, who basically got me into films, used to take me to the cinema every week. This was one of her two favourite films. The other one, again, being a, a Bogart movie, African Queen. She adored this film. And every time it's on, I have to almost fight away the tears because it's testament to, to her that I have this, this relationship with, with movies. I absolutely, because of her, enjoy this film. It, I, I'm no, I don't love it, as a lot of people do, but I recognise what kind of a film it is and its impact on cinema. It is, at the heart, a great romance. But as you said to me just before we started recording and pointed out, there's a lot of dry wit that runs through this film. Yes. Uh, I'll hold my hand up and be honest here, that when I first watched Casablanca, and I, I, I think it's one of them that I was about 13, 14, when I finally like decided, okay, people keep talking about this, I feel that I should watch it. And I, I didn't care. I didn't care at all for it. I, I just found it dull. And then I went back to it a few years later and I cared a bit more for it. And then I went back to it a few years after that and I started to love it. And it's a film that the more that I've watched it, the more that I've got from it. Initially, it was just, you know, everyone's heard of Casablanca. Everyone yeah. knows the it's lines of dialogue. as well. Everyone misquotes the lines of dialogue. I mean, everyone always says, play it again, Sam. Mm, that's not the actual line, but we'll let you off because you probably not watched the film. And this this uh, ties into like something which I'll mention towards the end of this that I found amusing when researching this. But it's a film that you feel that you should have watched. It's a film that you feel that if, especially if you're a film buff, a film geek, a film guru, you feel that it needs to be in your back catalogue. But you always have this impression going in of what you think the film's going to be, and it's not that. And it's only through repeated viewings that you start to pick up more on what the film is to you. And to me, after my most recent watch, not only is it a really heartfelt romantic drama that reduced me to tears by the end of it, but it's also one of the funniest films that I have seen this year. The dialogue exchanges in this are bitingly sharp. There's things like, what in heaven's name brought you to Casablanca? My health. I came to Casablanca for the waters. The waters? What waters? We're in the desert. I was misinformed. And <laughs> you, you, could, you could picture the Marx Brothers doing some of this lines of dialogue, but just playing it with a different like sensibility, and it would get hysterics. And because it's played so seriously, you don't find yourself laughing. It's only when you pick up later on what they've actually said. It's like, actually, that is really good humour. All the dialogue feels real. If you get a copy of the script of this and read through it, it feels like the real kind of dialogue that you would get from exchanges because we, there's nothing worse than a serious drama where every line of dialogue is well thought through and well structured and everything is playing to the plot because that's not what real life is. In a general conversation, I've done it multiple times today on the show. I've gone off on tangents. I've said things that are completely irrelevant to what we're talking about because that's how dialogue works and Casablanca gets that and it has that kind of dialogue exchange. It has little offhand comments. It has the repartee that you get between two friends in this case, Renault and Rick, the friendship throughout this is marvellous. And that is more important to me than the romance story. 
it's who Rick is to all the characters around him that is the important thing in this film. That's the interesting thing about this movie, Andy. I think you've you've hit the nail on the head. Rick's not a hero, is he? Oh, not at all. He's, he's not a villain. He is that, and, and incredibly for the time, he is a great Gray character. Area. Yeah, yeah, he is. He, he, he works and his motivations aren't cut and dried. He doesn't do it all for love, which plays into the very, very famous last scene. But there are, uh, as you said, it, mixtures of drama, melodrama, comedy, intrigue. And, and I've got to agree with you. I think as I've seen it more times, I saw it as a kid. I saw it on TV. I've, I've only ever seen it on TV. I saw it for film studies when I was in college. Uh, I saw it again recently. Well, I say recently within the last sort of 10 years when it was playing over Christmas. And I thought I needed to watch it again. You start to recognize that there are layers to this film. It's not a superficial movie. There's the love story, there's the intrigue, and there's a lot of the sort of textual politics to it. And you suddenly start to recognise that there's an awful an awful lot going on. Yeah, there's so much going on. There's such a variety of characters in there. You've, you've got Nazis in there. But because of the location that it's set, it's not like the normal jackboot Nazis. But there's that menacing presence. The character of Rick, like you say, is such a grey character. He's got a quite a dark past. And he doesn't do things for the right reasons. And that's what causes his inner turmoil in this film is that, you know, you believe throughout that he would betray the resistance at any point in order to get back with the lost lovers of his life. And so it makes it very believable that he would turn on them all, leading to that final scene. And that's what makes that final scene. And the, it's almost just like his own dialogue, because even though there's interactions with with others, it's all his words that have the power and have the emotion. And that whole you regret this, maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but soon for the rest of your life, you're going on that plane. That whole section, because you see the genuine inner character that he really is for the first time, that's what breaks you down. It's, it, you know, it makes you really feel the emotion. Like I say, I re- reduced the tears this time that I watched it. I had tears in my eyes on that scene, even though I knew it inside out. I was caught up in it this time because I'd completely caught up in the character of Rick. It might be, uh, it might be the thing of legend, but apparently the last day of shooting or the 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 end of the film, the cast weren't aware of how it was going to end. Yeah, I've I've seen those rumours, and it, it has been debunked by some sources, but it's been reinforced by others. So it's, I think it's another one of them that we'll never know the true story. What we do know about the film is that the lead actors weren't actually aware that this was adapted from a play. Right up until 1974, Ingrid Bergman had said in an interview, adapted from a play? Casablanca? I don't think so. And the writers of the play, Murray Burnett and Joan Allison, were hardly recognised, even when it came to the Academy Awards. The Epsteins received an Academy Award for Best Screenplay, but the original writers of the play were not given any credit and any recognition. The film was ready to go out of uh, copyright at one point, and in order to stop the original playwriters from regaining the copyright and then doing their own thing with it, they paid them off 100000 each. Uh, that was back in 1997, in order to renew their agreement with Warner Brothers so that they don't then go off and make the play. It's a shame that the original writers, because if it was adapted from a play, most of the dialogue, most of the interactions have come from that original stage show. 
it's a shame that they spent so many years fighting to get recognition for this film because they are very much integral to where this film came from. The film does leave, though, a lasting legacy. Uh, the film was a huge hit upon its release and there were talks instantly that, uh, that there should be a sequel, which would now happen without any doubt whatsoever. Brazzaville, in the final sequel, Renault recommends fleeing to that free French held city, was planned but never produced. There have been sort of sequels or sort of remakes in the fact of Havana in 1990 that starred Robert Redford. Madonna was interested in pursuing a remake set in modern day Iraq. And even the great Francois Truffaut refused an invitation to remake the film in 1974. But it does have a legacy. It's been parodied. It's been lovingly spoofed. And it's had sort of indirect, shall we say, if not remakes, then homages to that. Wasn't the uh, rather tragic 1996 barbed wire film compared by Roger Ebert to Casablanca? Yes, yes, it was. Uh, there was Robert Zemeckis's Allied, which came out in 2016, which was sort of a, a, a kind of take on it. And there was The Cheap Detective. Woody Allen's play against Sam, of course. Mm. Even a later Bogart film, Passage to Marseille, 1944, reunited Bogart, Reigns, Green Street and Laurie with director Michael Kurtz. And there was a TV series, uh, which I think was called Rick's Place, it wasn't called mm. Casablanca. And I remember it starred David Soule in the role that Humphrey Bogart made famous. Now, as I said towards the head of this, when I said that I'm going to bring in a little relevant fact, I'd commented how this is one of the films that people feel that they, they need to have seen, especially film geeks, film gurus. You feel that you have to have seen it. I genuinely think that it's one of those films that a load of people say that they've seen it when they've not really. In the same way that there's loads of people who claim to have read Tolkien's Lord of the Rings who clearly have never read it, Tolkien's Lord of the Rings because if I you mention I haven't if you so. mention aspects of the book to them they suddenly go blank faced. My theory on like how many people claim that they've seen it was kind of proven way back in 1982 when for an issue of film comments Chuck Ross wrote that he retyped the entire Casablanca screenplay, retitled it to Everybody Comes to Ricks and changed the name of Sam the piano player to Dooley after Dooley Wilson who played the character and submitted it to 217 agencies. Now, a load of agencies returned it unread, marked unread, because policies to refuse unsolicited screenplays. But those who did respond, only 33 of them recognised it as Casablanca. Eight others observed that it was similar to Casablanca. How similar? I mean, it's, pretty, it's the same words. 41 agencies rejected it, and this made me laugh, offering comments such as, there's too much dialogue, not enough exposition, the storyline was weak, and generally didn't hold my interest. Three agencies offered to represent the screenplay, and one suggested turning it into a novel. Now, these agencies represent film companies, so you would think that they would recognise Casablanca. So this... You'd think so. I mean, it is... It's a very recognisable script. <laughs> uh, how you could not recognise it, I don't know. But I love the whole too much dialogue and not enough exposition. It's like, well, you have just dismissed one of the greatest films ever made. But yeah, it's one of those films that people will say that they've seen it, but you haven't necessarily seen it, or you might have watched it and not really been paying attention. So it's a film that I recommend that whether you've seen it or not, get it checked out. If you do want to see it, Andy, where can you find Casablanca? It's not available for free on any services at the moment. It usually drops on BBC over Christmas. But in the meantime, you can rent it on streaming services. You can buy the new restored 4K Blu-ray version of it that was released this month. Or in only a couple of weeks time in the UK, it's getting a limited reissue across the UK on the 2nd of December. 
So check your local cinemas. You never know. You might get a chance to see Casablanca on the big screen. And that's this week's Deep Dive. And we'll be back again next week with another classic Deep Dive. And now it's time for this week's reviews. Andy has seen more than I am, which is starting to become a pattern. But we do have one film in common. Whether I liked it, whether Andy liked it, you're about to find out. But before that, Andy, what are this week's reviews? So we'll finish with the one that we're going to argue on. So we'll start off with my pick of the week. And my pick of the week is the menu. This entire evening, this guest list has been painstakingly planned. Is this bergamot I'm getting, Chef? Yes, it is. Could we get a little gluten-free bread? You donkey. Make sure people don't bother me. Would you like this autograph? Who are you? Why do you care? Are you with us or with them? On November 18. We're gonna die to do this. Isn't that right? Get out of their way. I didn't see that coming. The menu in theaters November 18, rated R. A group of people from various walks of life are all invited to the private island of celebrity chef Julian Slowick, played by Ray Fiennes, for an exclusive evening of special dishes, drawn around, as we are told by Nicholas Holt's character Tyler, a particular theme. However, as the courses are served, Truths about the guests start to come out, highlighting that there may be a more sinister reason for these names to be selectively invited along for this event, as the meal itself starts to take a very sinister turn. Build as a comedy horror, this gem as a film is maybe less horror. It's unnerving and disturbing at times, but it doesn't quite fit the category of horror in the manner that we usually think of it. More psychological, it unsettles and it unnerves as the tension starts to build. All the while, the dark humour ensuring that it doesn't feel too oppressive. The mix of characters who are guests all offer something engaging and intriguing to the film. From Holtz, Tyler and his partner Margot, played by Anya Taylor-Joy. Janet McTeer's Lillian, a pretentious food critic. And her editor Ted, played by Paul Adelstein. John Leguizamo's washed-up actor George. Regular guests Richard and Anne. Reed Burney and Judith Light, and a group of tech investors and executives. Each of the parties is hiding a secret, and the courses laid out over the evening are set to expose them. To say more would be to spoil the film. The film's setup is marvellous. It's got an initial setup that takes time to show us around the exclusive island restaurant, serving us the history of the food that will be presented. And for the first few courses, we are immersed into the sometimes pretentious nature of the world of high food. Much in the same way the outfit made us care about the craft before kicking the main story into gear earlier this year. The first half hour of the menu draws us in to be fascinated with the food preparation itself. However, even in those early stages, the almost cult-like aspect of Julian's Island, where his staff live and serve alongside him, throws in a sense of unease. And the maitre d' Elsa, played by Hong Chow, certainly adds to that sense that something isn't quite right. Mark Mylod hasn't made a feature film in 11 years, and this film is a very different animal than what you would have expected from someone who gave us Ali G in the house and What's Your Number? But over the last decade, he's cut his teeth and refined his talent, on shows such as Shameless, Succession, and even six episodes of Game of Thrones. And he's refined his style marvellously, ensuring that the menu is a film that is well presented, with some marvellous framing and visual flair, effectively chilling whilst retaining a solid level of dark humour to balance it all out. I've been so looking forward to seeing this one, so it's it's definitely on my list. And, and, and that's what I've liked about all the build-up to this movie and all the reviews I've read, is that you don't know what kind of a dish you're going to get until you've actually seen the movie and that intrigues me incredibly what else have you got secondly we've got now this is one that i've seen which i know that you want to see as well oh, it does. I'm, I, going to be I'm a big fletch fan uh like the books 
liked the, definitely the first of the Chevy Chase movies. Yeah. We've been talking about the reboot for Donkey's Years, and now it's finally happened. Is it worth the wait? I've never really read the books. Uh, well, well, I've never read the books. I've only really know Fletch from the old film, so I've got a lot of love for the Chevy Chase versions. But confess Fletch landed with John Hamm in the role. I looked into your criminal record, and you're a bit of a shady character, Mr. Fletcher. But I am adorable. This year. If you did kill that girl, do the right thing and give me an exclusive. Let's talk about the suspects. The Countess. The Countess de Grazia married Papa for his money. Somehow she's involved. Flesh. She's trying to seduce me. The art dealer. Quite the collection of impressionists you have here. Those are reproductions. That's how we introduce my children. The heiress. Why did you lie to me? You're becoming paranoid. Maybe you should get a cut. The neighbor. Did you murder that girl? Oh, okay. no, I didn't. Did you? What is this? Woodburn and Bernstein? Almost. Multiple suspects. Only one. Fletch. This stupid idiot moron has something to do with this. You want me on the outside so I can solve this thing? John Hamm. Are you Fletcher? Yes, I am. Oh! I mean, no, I'm not. I always get that wrong. Confess, Fletch. I don't know who people hate more, cops or reporters. It's cops. Whilst investigating a case of stolen paintings, Fletch, played by John Hamm, stumbles upon a murder scene and becomes the prime suspect for the crime. He begins investigating into the murder in order to clear his name, all the while trying to help Sergeant Inspector Munro, played by Roy Wood, and junior detective Grizz, played by Aidan Mayeri, as well as trying to prevent them from tailing him. In this adaptation of the second novel in the book series by Gregory MacDonald, now, I've never read the books, so my only experience with the character of Fletch is through the two Chevy Chase films, of which I'm a bit of a fan. That said, I was hoping that Ham wouldn't just copy Chase's style, and thankfully he doesn't. Making the role his own, he showcases his comedic chops marvellously, as Fletch stumbles from one clue to the next, interacting with a myriad of wonderfully eccentric characters in sometimes hilariously bizarre situations. His first meeting with Eve, a neighbour to one suspect named Owen, is a genuine laugh-out-loud treat, as Ham's facial expressions alone, reacting to the chaos around them, sells the humour. The sharp wit in dialogue, coupled with Ham's silent reactions throughout, making this Fletch instantly likeable and less smug than Chase's interpretation could be at times. The story is paced beautifully. It's packed with twists and turns, but it's quite easy to follow. The dialogue is sharp and fun throughout, and the support cast and characters are a joy to follow, meaning that even when Fletch isn't the main focus, you never feel that you're missing out on anything, and nor does the story feel unnecessarily padded out. Greg Matola was certainly a good choice to direct. He's previously showcased his humour approach and his use of multiple characters in films such as Superbad and Adventureland. And in the end, Confess Fletch lands as a joyously fun comedy murder mystery and maybe, just maybe, the best Fletch film to date. Here's hoping we don't have to wait a few more decades before another one. You see, the thing with John Hamm is he can do light comedy and he's done more yeah. of that post-Mad Men than he's done done serious roles. You think of things like Bridesmaids. I want more. I want more Fletch films with John Hamm. I want them to make a whole series of them. Well, I don't think he did well at the box office, but uh, maybe because it was only a kind of a mid-budget movie, it might find its home on streaming. Let's hope so. Yes. And finally, a film that we have both seen. Your favourite man crush, Ryan Reynolds, a Christmas movie with songs. It's based around loosely Scrooge. What could go wrong? 
I'm your ghost of Christmas present. So out of all the people on the planet, I'm the guy you're gonna haunt. I'm here to change him to being a more positive force for humanity. Hey, I'm haunting you. You can't just run away from me. So we've all seen adaptations of A Christmas Carol. They've been done so many times before. So what can we do new? Well, in this film, we see behind the scenes. We see how Jacob Marley's team of afterlife spirits help the ghosts of Christmas past, present and yet to come to redeem souls each year. How they select individuals to be targeted to try to change the world for the better. The new target, which is insisted on by the ghost of Christmas present, is Clint Briggs a media consultant played by Ryan Reynolds, who's got a reputation for, he basically stirs up controversy. He's one of the worst people on Twitter kind of thing. You know that, we talk about them very often. He's that nasty person who gets everyone believing nonsense, hysterical information. And so they begin a year research on him, and then they start the haunt. But things don't go quite to plan, because he recognises what the haunt is as a Christmas carol, and then starts to throw it back on the ghost of Christmas present himself, who he believes has his own dark secrets from his past that he's got unresolved. All this done with musical flair. There are so many interesting ideas in this. The initial conceit of a Christmas carol told from the perspective of the ghosts is is really interesting. There's some good standout comedic performance, especially for me, Sonita Manny, who is great mm. as the, she's way up for Ryan Reynolds' Ghost of Christmas Present. Uh, there's some good switching of traditional roles. There's some, some nice little turns. There's some songs by La La Land's Benj Pasek and Justin Paul. I hated it. <laughs> Ten minutes into this film, I hated it. And that's how quickly it slapped me in the face with its complete misdirection of ideas. Uh, it fell apart on the, on the first song and dance sequel. I, I, I love La La Land. It's a great movie. And I think I, I have the soundtrack album, which I play a lot. It should have been a high concept fantasy and a buddy comedy. I hated it. I just hated it. None of the songs stood out. There was nothing memorable about them. Twists and the turns felt like they were there only to try and create some kind of decent gag that needed bringing back from the dead. The look of the film looked like it was shot on a soundstage all the way through. And it looked cheap, even though that we know for a fact that it wasn't. I lost interest about half an hour in. I never regained interest until the very, very last song, which I thought was was the standout song in it, and peaked interest again towards the end. But this was the worst Christmas present you could get when you open it, and it's it was meant for your sister and not for you. It, it just didn't land for me. Uh, I, and I like, as you know, I, I like Ryan Reynolds. I like Will Farrell. I don't think he's done anything of interest recently. Uh, and I love a good Christmas film, and especially something based around Christmas Carol. But boy, it, this was, uh, uh, I, I felt like an, an overstuffed Christmas cake. There was just too much of it. And if you eat too much and it's far too sickly, it starts to make you ill. I enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs> This is, a, this is a real twist. <laughs> P- 
plot twist. I'm a, I, you're the Ebenezer Scrooge, <laughs> and, uh, and I'm Tiny Tim, who's still getting excited over. Yeah, I, I get, I get what you're saying. I, I can see the flaws in this film. And to be fair, I gave it three and a half out of five on Letterboxd, and then made the acknowledgement that anything with Ryan Reynolds in it automatically gets one star anyway. So it's a two and a half star film. But I enjoyed it. Yes, the music from Pasek and Paul. Who had given us, like you say, La La Land and Greatest Showman? You'd expect something a bit more memorable and a bit catchy. And whilst each of the song and dance numbers in their moment brought amusement and entertainment, none of them stuck with me, which is telling of how weak the music numbers are. But I was still had fun watching it. I was still caught up in the charm of it. I love, I mean, I love Ryan Reynolds, but I love his characters pointing out, you know, that maybe what they're considering is bad bad things aren't really that bad and flipping it round to start to explore exactly who the ghost of Christmas present was and delving into his backstory. I I loved the little humour in the background. Like you say, Sunisa Manny is absolutely magnificent in it as the ghost of Christmas past. Maybe it was slightly overlong. It didn't need to be two and a, like just over two hours. It could have been tightened up a bit, but I didn't dislike any moment of it. I just went along with the ride. I jumped on board this sleigh and got dragged through the snow whether I wanted to or not, and found by the end of it, you know what, I was charmed enough by it. I liked the twisting of the very final moments. Not going to give any spoilers, but I liked how it played out in that final scene. I'd happily sit through this again. No, I don't think I don't think I'll be returning to this next Christmas. It, whilst it won't be on my watching every Christmas Christmas list, you know, it's not it's not going to be anywhere near like the the, the fantastic high heights of um, Harold and Kumar very three D Christmas. It will always be one of those ones that I'll gravitate around every few years and go back and revisit. How different two reviews can be, and we've <laughs> never fallen out. You're over just a grumpy old Scrooge. Ever. You can find Spirited on Apple TV and a limited run in the cinemas, and it won't be in my Christmas stocking ever again. <laughs> and that's it for this week's reviews. But Andy, what are we looking forward to over the next week? It's another packed week at cinemas with a lot of content dropping and some of these will end up getting shuffled to one side and neglected. We've got Bones and All gets released this week. We've got Disney's Strange World for the family entertainment. Looks, I'm looking forward to this, but it's not, been marketed, it's not been marketed very well. No. And I'm worried that it's just going to suffer as, as a result. Uh, yeah, it's, it, there's, there's not much out about it. I've not even seen a, a full trial for it yet. On its very limited one-week-only release, Glass Onion, a Knives Out story, is at cinemas across the UK. Nanny arrives this week. She Said arrives. And Matilda the Musical also arrives on UK screens. So that's a lot of new content. Something's going to drop. Something's going to drop. Um, over on streaming, Now TV and Sky, after delivering us uh, nothing much over the past few weeks, tune in this week, guys, because two of the films of the year are in there. The Outfit and The Northman both land on Sky Movies this week. And over on Disney+, Plus, uh, I was surprised it's coming out this, this, month, this week, but I suppose it is Thanksgiving in the US, so they always do holiday specials. Guardians of the Galaxy holiday special is on our doorstep this week and we'll be talking about that next week oh we will no doubt lee will hate it and i'll absolutely <laughs> love it because uh, that, that's how christmas going. starts here and i know what you're thinking <laughs> Bar indeed <laughs> so that's it for this week folks but before we go and yes it's time for our neat things things that we've enjoyed things that we want to tell you about andy your neat thing is i'm i'm late to the party on this I really am late to the party on this. And I don't know why, because I love the franchise so much. But for some reason, I never really tackled it. But I've started watching Star Trek Lower Decks. 
I finally got round to Star Trek Lower Decks. I've not watched any yet. Boy, I'm enjoying every second of it. I've been a Trekkie throughout my life, just like yourself. And I don't know why it didn't really grab me. I'm, I'm not sure if it was the fact that, do we really want a comedy set in the Star Trek universe? Uh, I'm not sure. Is this going to be ridiculous? Is this going to ruin Star Trek? But what I discovered was that each of the episodes would actually make a fantastic Star Trek episode, a okay. standard Trek-related story. They all follow that kind of thing. But we're focusing on, you know, the low-level ensigns, who their perspective on things. And it's so respective of the Star Trek legacy, whilst mocking all the principles of it, in the same way that, you know, me and you would probably mock aspects of Star Trek left, right and centre. And that's what this is doing. It's doing it from a very loving kind of approach. And it's genuinely funny. Right down from the opening credit scene that I feel that I have to watch each week, even though it's exactly the same, of, you know, it's got the typical Star Trek kind of like, orchestral score like it all like bombastic dun, 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 dun. and like the, the ship just hovering next to like a, a planet and then it starts getting sucked back into a wormhole and then manages to break free or approaching ball cubes and then turning and fleeing the other way and it's that little jokey aspect of like takes the pretentiousness of the opening credits but put a comedy spin on them that sets the tone for the whole thing the voice cast are great the mix of characters, by the time you get to episode five and six, if you're not absolutely in love with these lower decks characters, there's something seriously wrong with you. The interactions with the full of themselves bridge crew, everything is just really good Star Trek, but really funny. It reminds me, comedy wise, well, to Galaxy Quest, okay, which itself paid a lot of loving respect to Star Trek, whilst also pointing out the stupid contrivances of Star Trek and how ridiculous it can all be. I've had so much fun with it, and it's made even better in the fact that my daughter, who doesn't watch Star Trek, she's got no interest in Star Trek, has been sat watching them with me and loving it alongside me. So I've found something that I can love as a Trekkie, and which a non-Trekkie can also watch and enjoy for the comedy, animated adventures aspect of it. Thoroughly recommend Star Trek Lower Decks. Well worth checking out. Thoroughly recommend spending some time with the Lower Decks crew. Fantastic. Uh, I'll, I'll try and get around to watching it. I, I've not given it a go yet because I've been busy. I've been busy. As you know, it was a birthday of mine a couple of weeks ago and my beloved for my birthday bought me a Spider-Man Miles Morales. I was a huge fan of Insomnia's Spider-Man game. Played it once and then went back and played it again. The open world feel of it, the dynamics, you actually felt like you were Spider-Man. Uh, I know this was released uh, as the introduction game to PlayStation 5, and uh, I've heard how gorgeous it is on PlayStation 5. I've got it on PlayStation 4, and whatever improvement is on 5 makes me makes me wonder, because it, <laughs> even on 4, it looks and plays marvellously. The tactile response on 5, it's the controller that you get the most use from. Oh, is it? Okay. Got, but, yeah. But, but what works about this is the dynamics of the story, mm. the uh, voice casting, the similarities to Spider-Man, just being able to swing around New York. And there are places that are swinging that I recognize, having been to New York many times. Uh, and the engaging character of Miles Morales, so of course we met in Into the Spider-Verse, if you didn't meet him in Brian Michael Bendis and Sarah Pacelli's comic run. This is an absolute joy. I play it, I put it down, and then the kid plays it. And uh, we have both have so much fun talking about it. Insomniac are the people to make Spider-Man games. And rumor has it that there will be a Spider-Man 2. Let's hope so. But in the meantime, this fills the hole perfectly. The game is an absolute thrill. And even though 
I'm guessing some of the mechanics are the same, the web slinging, etc. There are differences in the way that the character swings or the way that the character fights or the way that the character interacts with others. It's just it's just an, an absolute, absolute joy. Yeah. And that, folks, that's us done for this week. Andy, anything to look forward to over the next week? Trying my best to keep up with how much media and entertainment there is at the moment. I mean, all those films that are said are coming out this week, I want to watch a, hand, a fair handful of them. Glass Onion's definitely on my radar, yeah. but when I'm going to get a chance to watch it is another thing. But I, I'm just struggling at the moment to stay on top of TV shows as well because everything's landing again. I didn't take advantage of that three-week period where there was no new shows, <laughs> and know, now I'm regretting it. I've not caught up on anything, and I'm falling behind so much. In general, whilst the World Cup's going on, there's not going to be much else to do. So it's that's going to be my opportunity to avoid football, not talk about it at all, and just hope that the only bit of football that I'm interested in, Ted Lasso, are we going to get a release date for that now? Come on, please. Ted Lasso Season 3, we need it. Or at least a Christmas special again. Or at least a Christmas special, yeah. Okay, folks, well, join us again next week for another film file. And in the meantime, we'll always have Paris. And when they met, it was Moyada. See, I planned it this <laughs> week. <laughs> yeah, segued into that beautifully. Yeah. <laughs> Shall we we'll use that as the theme tune this week? Then? That's the theme tune this week. Whether they want it or not, that's what they're getting. <laughs> Hi, welcome to the film show. No, it's not the film show. It's got that wrong. <laughs> it kind Hi. of is, but we have kind a title. Of... Right, just a generic. <laughs> Welcome to Hi. the soap opera in Manchester. Yeah. <laughs> On a street. It's a street show. <laughs> Yet again, dear fellow geeks, for another hour of... When I say an hour, I'll just do that. <laughs> I'll get rid of that because go down a hole. Thank you, you for joining us. <laughs> B-movie budget, way back in the day. Way back in the day. Make it sound like it was like, you know, the, the 1800s. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, if they've, if they've got rid of, like, so many employees and they're basically a skeleton crew who are trying to hold that fort together while the mess is happening, then Twitter's just going to turn into more and more of a problem ground. It'll, yep. be, it'll end up being just like 4chan. And if you're a 4chan user out there, it's like, oh, grow up. <laughs> God, I'm really trying to alienate our geek community yes. out there, aren't I? <laughs> There's all the love here, though. There's all the love. <laughs> And his plan to make a movie featuring the carrot, featuring the carrot, carrot. featuring the character <laughs> of Frank Bullet. So uh, Lee has now disconnected. I think was disagreeing on a film. He's basically just quit. <laughs> Hello. Yeah, you are. <laughs> As you disconnected, then I've just gone. Well, Lee has disconnected. <laughs> basically, basically, because we've disagreed on a film, he's quit the show. <laughs> I did get to the end of the line. <laughs>